You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So hey everyone and welcome back to another episode of Changing Reality. We are so excited to have you here today because we have a very special guest speaker on today's lovely episode. So for all of you who may not be familiar with what Changing Reality is or if this is the first time you're watching the show, Changing Reality is a show that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are in essence changing the world around them. So we'll be hanging out and interviewing social change makers, entrepreneurs, business owners, to top executives, professors, um, academicians, musicians, and inspiring individuals from all across the world. And by listening to these inspiring stories on how they're changing the lives around them, we get to figure out how we too can use the experiences that we have to create meaningful impact in the people in our spaces as well. And I think that the power of stories is very, very important. And the more we circulate these stories around, the more growth happens. Personally, I founded and run a youth movement in uh, Malaysia, where I'm from, called Ascendance, which today is an international youth movement that collaborates with organizations like the Malaysian Ministry of Education to international partners to provide an alternative education platform for any student who wants to change their reality. So we work with students from elementary all the way up to college through various sessions, programs, experiential learning activities and projects that help them discover their passion learn about themselves and the world around them, and start their own careers while they're still in school. That creates meaningful impact, not just for themselves, but for the people around them too. And to date, we've been very fortunate to work with over 15,000 students in 970 communities and have incubated countless number of student-run projects, social enterprises, and many other things by students aged 8 to 25 years old. And the core that has been helping us do this, create this impact, changing the way kids look at lives, is hearing stories like this. Once they see the limitless possibilities of people from all across the world, they know that at whatever age they are, wherever they might be, they can make a difference too. And just to show you the power of the stories, um, in this September this year, we're actually having a conference for 50,000 students all across the globe called Our New Age Learner Building the Future with Generation Z that is fully run by Gen Z. So they are the ones who are doing everything from uh, putting up the presentations, videos, uh, getting working with the thousands of students and teachers to enable um, the participants to get in, to even rising with ministry organizations and international companies and partners to ensure that the conference goes on smoothly. And even the speakers themselves are multiple award-winning Gen Zs from over uh, 10 different countries, 20 different speakers who are changing the world around them. So 10-year-olds from Tanzania who teach financial literacy, or 17-year-olds um, from Canada who work in the healthcare space, have their healthcare-related startups. And all of these stories is what continuously creates that movement of change. And hopefully through shows like this, where we can meet inspiring people that we would otherwise not have the chance to hear um, their stories, we are able to create more change and more excitement in the lives of people all across the globe. So if you have any questions about that, do drop it in the show chat below. And moving to today's episode, as I mentioned, our guest today is a world famous professor and academician. He is someone who really navigates the digital landscape and teaches not only people like me who are college students, but consults for some of the global companies out there. In a world today where the digital landscape is rapidly changing, how does one even learn how to navigate this? And today's uh, guest is someone who spent his life tracking the path of these uh, mobile technologies and the effects they're having on industries. He is um, one of the most prominent thought leaders in this space and has also been ranked in the top 1% of the world's most influential researchers by the Web of Science between 2008 and 2018. Today, he has also worked with several Fortune 500 companies in the US, Asia, Africa, Europe as a consultant and coach to answer questions in this area as well. He is a, a professor of business and the director of the Masters of Science in the Business Analytics Program at NYU Stern School of Business, one of the best leading universities in the world. And is the author of the best-selling uh, multiple award-winning book, TAP, Unlocking the Mobile Economy, which has been translated into over five languages. 
And just to show how amazing he is as an individual, in 2014, he was named by Quotes and Quants as one of the top 40 outstanding business school professors under 40 in the world. And by Analytical Week as one of the top 200 thought leaders in uh, big data and business analytics. In less than nine years, he rose to a full professor at, again, one of the world's top universities and is the youngest recipient of several prestigious awards, including the Informs ISS Distinguished Fellow Award and was recognized as one of the top 30 management thinkers globally who are most likely to shape the future of how organizations are managed and led in the next generation. So I think without further ado, all of us would like to meet this amazing professional who has gone out there and today um, consults and even aids organizations like Apple, Alibaba, Facebook, and Google in the various work that they do in navigating the digital world, bringing to you Professor Anindo Ghosh. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. How are you feeling? We're so excited to have you. Oh, I am super excited. No, I, uh, it's a great day. You know, it's sunny, it's cloudy, it's not humid, uh, it's beautiful. All right, so good day for interview, perfect interview weather. <laughs> and like, just saying your introduction is like, every time I think I read about you, my brain short circuits a bit because for someone very young, like relatively very young in the academic space, you have achieved so much and you have brought on so much research that I think really, really changes the reality that we live in. So first of all, like thank you on behalf of someone who who likes reading about these uh, transformations that are happening. But also, it's very curious for us to find out, like, how did you actually start all of this? Like, were you always the kind of person since young who had this forward vision of wanting to change the world in this way, or were you different as a kid? In a sense? Oh, um, to put it simply, I had no idea what I would do till very late in life. Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, you know, I, I prior to my uh, academic career, I was in the industry, which I had, you know, uh, started working for IBM and Hewlett Packard after an MBA. Before that, I had done undergrad engineering. Basically, um, you know, engineering, MBA, PhD, uh, it's sort of is a telltale sign that I was confused for a really long time over what I need to do. <laughs> I finally found my home in as a professor uh, in a business school, and it's been a fantastic, very fulfilling, gratifying journey since then. Absolutely brilliant. And I think, you know, some of our previous conversations, you mentioned that you were, you're from India, you're actually from a, a village in India, and you grew up not exactly in the most affluent places that many of probably the students at Penn that I know today are from. But at the same time, you've grown so much. Tell us a little bit about how you were growing up and how that has kind of like impacted you in the drive that you have today for your yeah, I'm no, happy to. Uh, you know, to, to be frank, um, I had very, very humble you know, uh, background in terms of when I was a child, uh, I think the best way is probably saying uh, not even middle class, maybe lower middle class. Um, so just to give you some context, when I was five, my parents, uh, we all moved to East Africa uh, between, uh, you know, we were first in Tanzania for about eight years, nine years, and then in Zambia for about another six or seven years. Um, so I did spend a lot of my adolescent years in Africa um, uh, growing up, you know, speaking Swahili as almost my first language. Some, at one point, I spoke it better than, you know, Hindi and Bengali. Um, but then um, when I was in middle school, um, I, my parents decided that, uh, you know, they should send back to India because higher education wasn't as, you know, great over there in Tanzania or Zambia. So I came back to, um, you know, stay with my grandmother um, and sort of the extended family, uncle and aunts. And they are sort of, you know, my grandmother is who is really responsible for raising me between the age of 10 and 18. And so, and I wish she was alive today to see where I am, but unfortunately she's not. Uh, but, you know, I am obviously grateful to her. Um, so during those, you know, almost a decade uh, from middle school to high school to college, etc. Uh, we were living, um, you know, in the outskirts of Calcutta in a sort of a small uh, suburban, you know, you can call this a small town. Uh, it actually even today looks more like a village than a city. Uh, the place is Jinjira. Officially, it's part of Calcutta, but it's really, you know, way out there. Um, and, you know, like I said, you know, we didn't have much. My, my grandmother, she, she tried to give everything she had to me, but, you know, she didn't have much to give. 
And what that inculcated in me is the value of money, the value of saving every single rupee. Um, and just to give you some context, uh, my home, the, the distance between my home and the uh, place where the school bus would arrive was easily uh, a 20 minute walk one way. So about a 45 minute walk both ways. And uh, yes, I did have an option of taking a public bus to go from home to the school bus stop instead of walking 45 degrees Celsius in the hot, humid weather. But, you know, the bus fare was two rupees each way. And I figured on many days if I would save that two rupees, I could actually use that to eat some snacks, my favorite snacks like Golgappa, because I didn't have enough pocket money. And so, you know, I often reflect on those days because um, the fact that I would have to save two rupees, this is Indian rupee today is in US dollars, like, I don't know, five cents. So the fact that I had to save five cents to be able to enjoy my snacks, um, you know, on a very frequent basis, inculcated in me the value of money. And so, you know, I have been poor and I've been, you know, fine. And I would I understand what it takes to go from, you know, that level of, uh, uh, you know, uh, I wouldn't call it poverty, but something close enough uh, to that and to come to where I am today, which is I have a house in Manhattan and Park Avenue, one of the most expensive real estate places in the world. Right. So I never forget where my roots are. And the fact that if I can go from a small town slash village in the remote part of India and establish a presence in one of the world's biggest cities, anybody can do it. Right. So um, I hope listeners get some motivation from this story you know sometimes i think i'll write a book from jinjira to park avenue <laughs> uh maybe one day i'll write it you should you should i would definitely read that and i and i definitely think people listening in would, are so inspired because it's not easy to make the transition to the level of success you've had today and especially hearing how you were as a kid and how you actually grew and things that i would i say the things that happened in your life that actually enabled you to have that drive that values that brought you forward i think that's very important for us to see because it gives us a sense that oh it's possible for us too so thank you so much for sharing in a way and how were you like like growing up in a sense when you were at that point like you mentioned you were a bit confused like doing your VA and like your other things and you actually have a bachelor's degree in engineering so what was right. it like at that point of age like like for when you were like my age at 18 19 in a sense and were you figuring out like okay like what I want to do what do I like doing how did you actually come with the decision to take the next step in your life yeah, you know, so in, in the mid 1990s, when I was doing my engineering, uh, you know, basically growing up in India at that time, we really had like two options. You're either going to be an engineer or you're going to be a doctor. And if you're neither an engineer or a doctor, <laughs> then you I know, you're... those two options only. So, okay, got it. Sometimes yeah, in a company. <laughs> exactly. It's not like, you know, you guys, your generation has so many great options and that's exactly how it should have been. But for our generation, you know, pretty much if you are not an engineer doctor, uh, it wasn't, uh, you didn't really make it. So, you know, I, I didn't want to be a doctor. So I said, okay, fine. By default, it has to be engineering. Um, but then when I entered, uh, you know, when I started pursuing undergrad, um, I had this uh, sort of you know, thought process that, uh, getting into a top business school in India uh, would be my dream. And so, because I, I actually, before my undergrad, I thought I would make it to the top engineering institute, the IITs in India. But for various reasons, uh, even though I was one of the toppers in my school, but my school is, uh, even as of today, the world's largest school. It's called South Point High School. We had uh, 950 students in each year. And, you know, I would normally be in the top 10 or top 15 of that entire cohort. And so everybody thought I would track the IITs and I thought as well, but various circumstances, uh, you know, led to a situation where I didn't crack the IIT. So I went to the next best set of engineering schools called the NIITs, but I was very deeply disappointed that I didn't make it. And so I promised myself on day one of undergrad that my next journey is going to be in the best business school in India. And so I was from day one motivated to get into the IIMs, Indian Institute Management, and which is what happened after four years. Uh, but even even as I was pursuing my MBA, you know, I, to, to the point about being not sure what I want, I wasn't sure what I wanted. Um, you know, I joined uh, IBM and Hewlett Packard as a consultant, but I wasn't really liking it. I had terrible bosses. They would just, <laughs> you know, um, uh, make life miserable on a daily basis. And I, for, for some reason, I thought, 
corporate life is all about terrible bosses. And I said, okay, what is the one profession where you don't have a boss? Well, turns out either you're an entrepreneur or you're a professor. Actually, entrepreneurs still have you know bosses. The, the investors who fund are your bosses. But for us, we don't really have a boss, right? And so that's how I started thinking, okay, let me pursue academia because not because I'm so smart, but because I will not have a boss. <laughs> um, Good one. And it seemed to work out very well. So. Yeah, thankfully, you know, I'm very grateful for how things have turned out. And I should also add, you know, one other thing that I also realized early enough in my PhD that I'm not the smartest kid on the block, not by a distance. But what I have is I have ambition, I have drive, tenacity, perseverance, discipline. I have these five traits, which I believe always would compensate for the fact that I'm not the smartest kid on the block. Um, and so, you know, my mantra in life has always been there are no shortcuts to the top. Okay. So if any of you young folks are listening, uh, even if you are the smartest kid on the block, there is no shortcut to the top. You have to burn the midnight oil, you know, to get to the top. So please keep that in mind. No, and I think that's very true because it's like um, someone once told me that your winning it can only go so far. So it's like your, your yeah. whatever talent you have, whatever things that come naturally to you can only take you to a level. But if you really want to go to that next level, you have to put in the work. You have to turn it into something that is precise practice that is um in a way putting uh, filled with effort and love so that you become the best of the best and i think hearing it from you we shall all reconsider our schedules and put in more time to focus on our goals and the work that we do and how did you even pick like going into your phd years and how did you decide on that that you like start working or, or learning about this industry that was the internet, how it's rapidly changing the markets and different industries. I mean, in your book, you mentioned that it was during your PhD years that you became fascinated by how the internet was changing markets and industries. So how, like, how was that process? Like, what, what was that one moment where you were like, oh, this is something that I think I can devote my time and energy into learning more about? Yeah, yeah. Again, you know, in, in all candidness, uh, when I joined the PhD program, I had a different plan. My plan was, yes, secret, right? My plan was I would pursue, um, you know, uh, in a PhD program in the US, uh, you have to do, after two years of work, you have to take an exam called the qualifying exam. And if you pass that, then you're on road to the PhD. If you pass, but you also have the option of dropping out after passing, in which case you get a master's degree. And so my plan was when I got into Carnegie Mellon was I'm going to get that master's degree for free because PhD students have no tuition to pay. Instead, we get stipends, right? And I would basically get the master's degree and join the corporate world in the McKinsey or Goldman Sachs, you know, compared to the MBAs that have to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars, I would get away with that free degree. <laughs> and that was a secret plan, right? However, uh, fortunately, after the first year of the PhD, program, I realized I'm really loving this whole idea of academic research and the potential to then have an impact on society through teaching and, you know, impact companies through my research, you know, change policies of governments. All of those things dawned on me after the first year and I realized, okay, this is it for me. I do not want to be like sneaking out of this program and getting a master's degree and, you know, joining a McKinsey and Goldman Sachs. I want to be a business school professor. And then once I decided that, there was no turning back. It was, you know, burning the midnight oil every single day. I slept only four hours a day for the entire four years, every day, 365 days a year. Okay. And that's what I mean by, uh, you know, hard work and dedication and perseverance will get you to your dreams. Um, so that's how, you know, that's how it really started in terms of, uh, you know, uh, how I changed trajectory in terms of the topics that you mentioned. Yes. You know, I had prior experience in the industry with IBM and Hewlett Packard. And so this is during the dot-com boom in 1998, 1999, 2000, you know, so I was always fascinated by, you know, what's happening with the internet world, with the startup world, with dot-coms in particular. And when I joined the PhD program that same year in the year 2000, you know, just before the dot-com bust, I was very sure that any uh, academic research I pursue has to win that space. That's really how I got into this thing. Um, I started, you know, digging more and more into this, and I realized there's really not any work 
interesting work uh, done so far because you know it was early days of the internet right mm -hmm. and so you know sometimes as i say the, you know uh, luck has i always believe that luck is a huge factor in uh in you know, my own journey and you know i have no qualms in acknowledging that i was lucky that the timing of my uh, PhD program worked out in a way where I, I could choose these exciting topics before anybody else would choose and you know that would then set the way, platform for sort of future trajectory success absolutely brilliant and upon finishing your phd program you became a professor at nyu one yeah. of the world's best business schools so i guess your 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 mission to go to the best schools didn't end at the at academic level it went on to even your career in a sense so how do you even like become a professor at such a prestigious university and tell us maybe some stories from your early years as a professor like i, I love college students i am a college student but they can be the worst sometimes so i can only imagine like like having to teach a bunch of undergrads would not be like the like the most fun thing on the planet but you see to be a professor who has gotten an amazing reviews from the students that you've taught. So tell us what's your secret sauce as well. Yeah, well, first of all, I want to like demystify teaching undergrad is a huge fun. It was huge <laughs> fun. You know, honestly, Harsha, I still am, you know, college friends. I still am friends with my undergrad students from like 15 years back. You know, like they would, um, uh, if you meet in the streets, we'll obviously, you know, say, more than a high and a low, but we always stay in touch on social media. And I love seeing their life trajectories, you know, from personal life milestones, engagement, marriage, children, to professional careers. I'm still in touch with the vast majority of them. Um, I, I just love, you know, and my first few years, I did teach the undergrads only before I moved on to teaching MBAs and exec MBAs. So yeah, I think to your question, look, when I when I was finishing my PhD, I had two dream schools, you know, and uh, it was either UPenn or NYU. And I know you're, I'm not saying just because you're from UPenn. Honestly, I, I my two dream schools were Wharton School and Stern School. And, um, you know, not not every school recruits every year. So that year it so happened that the Stern School was recruiting. I got the offer. I was delighted, thrilled beyond my, uh, you know, I remember getting a call on the phone from the department chair about them making an offer. And I just kind of jumped, shrieked in joy, <laughs> uh, two feet away from the ground, up, up the ground. Um, yeah, so, you know, I was, uh, it, it was, uh, it was great to start my journey at Stern. Uh, during these years, as, as I mentioned before, you know, I also spent some time at Wharton. I was visiting Wharton. Um, they had uh, come back to me with uh, with an offer when I, I just gotten promoted to associate professor, and um, you know, given my past love for uh, spending some time at Wharton, I decided I'm going to spend some time there. Uh, but really, mostly it's been at NYU Stern. It's been uh, NYU is a fantastic university, very very supportive of junior faculty. You know, very creative in how it gives us the flexibility to do many things. Um, you know, obviously New York City is just a terrific place to live as well. So yeah, you know, um, no complaints, um, you know, um, all good so far. Oh, it's very nice to hear. So sad that we missed you to have your support. <laughs> it's okay, I'll go and complain by myself, like a right letter. But like, okay, I'm glad to know that you, you got into one of your dream schools as a professor as well. Like, oh my gosh, we should learn goal setting from you at the very least, you know, and like, even after like becoming a professor, as you started doing your research, as you started um, really establishing yourself as a prominent thought leader in this space, you even started venturing out to consulting. You consult today, I think, for some of the biggest companies out there across the globe, Fortune 500 companies, companies across four continents, as we mentioned earlier. So where, how did you kind of like make that, I wouldn't say transition, but open up that new branch of consulting? Not all professors do this. Uh, some of them focus solely on their research, some of them on the teaching that they do. But you opened up this whole new avenue and started doing something that has so much industry impact. Why did you start doing that in the first place? And how, how did you get into it? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, so, you know, the why has a simple answer. And the answer is that, I was always motivated uh, in pursuing my academic research. My key motivation wasn't just an academic publication. It was really sort of influence and change how organizations you know, operate or how to make decisions, how policies are enforced by policymakers. I wanted to have an impact on the real world. 
And so I would generally try to choose topics or research projects that I could see in the, in the future would have such an impact. Okay? Now, um, the way it works in the US system is you know, prior to tenure, you're not encouraged to uh, engage much with the industry. You're encouraged to focus on your research. But once you have uh, been promoted to an associate professor with tenure, then you know, those restrictions or limitations are, are loosened. And then you have the flexibility to, to reach out to the rest of the world and sort of look for opportunities for impact. And, and, and if things go well, then generally those opportunities come to you. You know, by then uh, yeah, there's word of mouth about your reputation, about your research, and corporations and companies will often reach out to you. And that's sort of what, what started happening to me as well. Um, you know, um, within a year or so of getting promoted to uh, getting tenured, you know, lots of floodgates of opportunities opened up. Um, initially, they were um, data science. My background is I'm a professor of data science and marketing analytics. So, you know, usually, initially, the opportunities were in that space where companies would say, hey, look, you know, we have a lot of data. We're not sure what to do with it. Can you help us guide how we can make meaningful use of these data sets to drive decisions, you know, uh, and make sort of important uh, changes within the organization? So that's what we call data science consulting, where I would help them build like econometric models, machine learning models, and put them into use and see those changes. You know, it's very, very fulfilling to see that. Um, then I saw um, many companies asking me, inviting me to join their board, like an advisory board position, where it was less of the hands-on data science work, but more strategic feed, uh, feedback to the founders uh, strategic feedback to the entrepreneurs about you know how to take the next step you know going from a pre-seed to series A, series B, that sort of thing. I am on the board of eight or nine companies at this point, and you know that's another different uh, kind of a gratification um, how I sort of draw satisfaction in what I do. But perhaps the most impactful of my uh, consulting has been in the world of litigation. Uh, this is complex litigation where you know uh, in in the U.S., we have these uh, corporate lawsuits, for instance, where you know Apple is suing Samsung, or you know the the government is suing Facebook and Google for antitrust, those sort of things. And um, around 2014, 2015, I got it was very you know, sort of serendipitous. I got a call from you know some economic consulting firm saying, "Hey, would, would you like to have lunch? And you know we would like to see if you're interested in doing this sort of consulting." And, Honestly, Arsha, I had no idea that that world existed. So <laughs> the first time I was hearing about, oh, my research can be used by Apple to uh, fight this battle, billion dollar battle against uh, Samsung, really? Or my research can be used by Snapchat to fight this multi-billion dollar intellectual property issue? I had no idea. So that meetings, those meetings opened up my eyes. And since then, you know, I have uh, been working in economic consulting and I've really learned a lot by working very deeply with these companies. And I must say that, you know, this, uh, the, uh, in addition to, um, you know, so the main reason why I enjoy the consulting is it really enhances my teaching and research. There is a very nice virtuous cycle, you know, between the three. Um, as I work with companies, my, I bring those learnings back in the classroom, especially when I teach executives or senior CISO people. They then take my learnings and realize that, oh, maybe there is an additional problem I can help them solve. And sometimes that's a research project, sometimes that's further consulting. So it's a nice virtual cycle there, and I've, I've really enjoyed that. Absolutely amazing. And there's so many things that I think we can ask. So I'll just start off with, Tell us a little bit about this virtuous cycle. I mean, you've got, um, like, yes, I see that, that connection definitely. It's like you've got mm. the consulting bit of it. That is like the industry relationships, that like real-time feedback of what's actually happening. Then if that goes back into your research, it makes you really the best of the best and very current in what you do. And, of course, you go back and you feed the bright minds of today that will, go, that will eventually become the next future leaders and all of that. So definitely something that is absolutely like amazing like how you build that up but honestly you do that on top of that you're an author you're on the boards of so many companies where do you find the time in a sense to do all of this you know when when you when you love what you're doing uh, you don't worry about the time it, it somehow all that work just fits in the time you have and 
Um, and yeah, you know, I, I do have multiple hats. You're a USI. I'm an educator, but I'm also an advisor, speaker, you know, C-suit coach, consultant, all of that. I enjoy it. Like I said, you know, it's it's it goes beyond the the financial aspects of all of this. It, it really uh, keeps me on my toes. I'm continuously learning. You know, I love that Steve Jobs mantra: "Stay hungry, stay foolish." I love it because that's that's just how um, I think about you know the next uh, few years as well. Um, and you know, the, the other thing, like when we do all this hard work of research and teaching. I want to come back home and feel gratification. I want to sleep at night knowing that whatever I'm doing in the classroom, I'm adding value. Otherwise, you know, I'm not the kind of person that be comfortable not doing so. You know, uh, people are different. Many people are okay with that. Many professors are okay with that, and I'm not. And so, to your question, why I have always believed in the virtuous cycle of research, teaching, and consulting is because I know that using this three pillar framework, I can make tangible impact on students and society on companies. And that's where I draw my gratification from. That's what really excites me, you know, every day when I wake up, like um, even if it's a small, tiny bit of a difference in somebody's lives, you know, if when I can enhance my students' careers, I know that their families are better off, their extended families are better off, right? So the trickle down effect of having an impact in the classroom is not just on a given student's career. It's on multiple individuals in the family of that individual, right? And that's how I think about why I'm doing what I'm doing. Maybe, I don't know if that helps. <laughs> no, I think that does. And I feel like many times it's like focusing on that purpose. And I like how you painted that, that virtue cycle and seeing that effect of that cycle is in a way something that that helps like like helps you kind of find the time for everything i feel like if all of us can just identify how the different areas in our own life feed into each other then that would number one make us much more happier people and a lot more kind of like inspired to do the work that we do and i feel like sometimes we lose a little bit sight of how things are connected in our life and that gets us tired and off track so thanks for the reminder personally i'm going to write that down and like um you you also mentioned the, the impact that your work creates and i think we're entering unprecedented times in the world of the in the mobile world in the tech and internet mm -hmm. world so there is definitely a lot of spaces which I can see would need the research that you do. I mean, like tech companies today are some of the largest. I mean, they are the largest companies out there. Uh, recently, some like companies like Amazon even sent people to space. So I don't see that like any time they're going to slow down. And they are, in a sense, it's still very foreign because a lot of the laws that we've had um, haven't really like they're being made right now to regulate to um, identify problems to mediate disputes and all of that so your research and your role as kind of like a consultant in that litigation field is also very important but at the same time these are billion dollar companies and i'm going to be honest like personally for as a, as a student maybe or as a young entrepreneur when i make decisions about my own few like hundred bucks i'm still like oh my gosh how do i decide how do i consult or something like that but you literally like your work impacts billions of dollars of cash flow um lawsuits and all of that so how do you have the courage or the faith in your research like obviously you are the leading champion in this it's just that even then do you ever get nervous about like like your consultation work with them and if so how do you still like like do the best that you can do and like bring the best self forward yeah no absolutely and and now you're going to make me admit my weaknesses which is great it's totally fine <laughs> sorry uh, no no i'm just kidding look um to your question about nervousness and apprehension absolutely you know like there are days when i wake up and say okay i am going to be testifying in this multi-billion dollar lawsuit on behalf of one of the world's largest companies and my testimony can have a severe impact for for better or for worse on the outcomes and you know millions or billions of dollars will be uh, exchanging hands based on what i'm saying how i'm saying so there are of course you know it is uh, nerve-wracking no question uh, but at the same time you know it is uh, very rewarding when things work out when things work out your way and so, you know, um, early in my career, when I was uh, trying to have that, this sort of impact on companies through my litigation work or data science work or, you know, speaking, um, I would spend uh, a lot of time prepping because I realized, look, there are things I can control. What can I control? I'm going to put in my 100%. I'm going to burn the midnight oil. 
you know, do 100 hour weeks, make sure I uh, leave no stone unturned and then leave the rest to God, right? Um, if I, most of the time when you work hard, fortune favors the brave and the diligent and you know, it worked out, right? But have I ever had uh, imposter syndrome? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm a first generation immigrant in this amazing country and this country has given me so much in life and uh, there are days when I sometimes I wake up and say, do I really deserve all this? And then I tell myself, look, you know, you worked hard, you deserve it. <laughs> I think that that is very, very like well said in the sense. And like, again, we may not be at the level of making the decisions so the work needed as you are, but I feel like for all of us who are facing that imposter syndrome, for all of us who are facing like that, that insecurity in a sense, or not sure what we can control and what we can't, that sharing is very important. So thank you so much for like uncovering a little bit about your weakness. I promise we won't tell anyone. No, 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 no. Go for it, go for it. I am I'm in my full <laughs> candid mode today. You can ask me whatever. Right. Most candid mode. Okay, got it. So maybe we could talk a little bit about your book moving forward. So you wrote this absolutely amazing book. I've read a little bit of it, I gave, and I'm already hooked to some of the insights. And also, you're a very fun writer to read. I'm just saying it, it like for the for subject matter that is very, um, a little bit technical in a sense. Like it's actually understandable and it's actually quite engaging. So your book is called Tap Unlocking uh, Unlocking the Mobile Economy, and um, you published this in 2017. So what made you want to write a book in the first place? Were you hit by inspiration and someone came down and said, you need to write this book and all? Or was it some uh, feeling that you had that, all right, I've got this important research that I think needs to be shared. What was the inspiration behind it? Yeah, so you know, the main inspiration was that um, having done almost you know uh, a decade and a half of research in the internet, digital, mobile space, um, every time I would get in front of uh, companies, executives, managers, you know, a real world audience um, and, and speak or give a keynote or do an executive education or do some sort of consulting work, they would often come back and ask me, uh, Professor, have you considered putting everything together in a book? Because we would love to read everything. And I because <laughs> then I, I was just distributing PDF uh, PowerPoint slides and some you know documents, but I didn't have anything together. And this is too valuable. Let us pay you for this research in a sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, like when um, when I kept hearing that over and over again, I realized you know what? It sounds like there's a market, a book market for this. So that's what got into. That's what I thought started thinking about in 2015. Um, I got um, a few publishers approach me themselves saying, uh, look, you know, we, we think uh, you have a lot to write in terms of a book. And eventually I decided to go with MIT Press. There's a very well-known publisher in the you know, technology and data science space. And then that's how the book came about. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it, its success far exceeded my expectations. You know, um, it's, uh, it's been great. Uh, won a number of awards, was on the bestseller list for, in many countries, it's been translated into, you know, um, uh, Mandarin, Korean, Japanese, Vietnamese, Taiwanese, and and so on. Um, yeah, it's been great. Um, and I think, you know, um, now I'm starting to think about whether I should write a second book, but we'll see. We'll see. This is the book uh, about your life story, right? That you mentioned earlier. That I buy. Like, we're still betting on it, but okay. Yeah, that will probably have to wait till I'm really old uh, maybe at this point that's a little too premature maybe someday yeah okay by that time you'll probably have to do a few volumes professor because already <laughs> now like you're the youngest professor in this field okay so i i have to wait now gosh so luckily you're having this interview to give them some spoilers to that but um like even then like many people want to write a book they get inspired they try to write a book but then yeah. they sit down in front of the laptop and after two weeks of writing heavily they lack the inspiration or was mm -hmm. that the case for you? Was there any roadblocks in that, that journey or even like times where you hit writer's block? And if so, how did you actually overcome it? Because obviously you did and you wrote this best-selling amazing book then all. So how do you yeah. come up with like, solutions to the roadblocks that you face? And again, I've got to ask Insecure Teenager, how, before knowing that you win all of these awards and things like that, how did it feel putting out your work and putting yourself out there through this publication? Yeah, so um, you know, some, some wise man once told me that um, whatever you're doing, don't worry about the rewards, right? Just do it for the sake of doing it and, and give it your best, you know? So like what I mean to say is when I was writing about, thinking about writing this book, 
And I wasn't thinking about, you know, uh, awards or best-selling lists or translations. I just, my motivation was put my entire body of consulting and research into one one-stop shop so that, you know, uh, the world can read what I've, what I've done, right? Um, and of course, now the challenge, as you point out, there are challenges, many challenges. The first challenge was, you know, I'm a nerdy, mathy kind of a guy. My research is mostly, you know, econometrics, machine learning, experiment. So we, and like many other business professors, we have this challenge. We have to translate all that, you know, equations and math and Greek symbols into stories. Okay? Especially if you're writing a book for the managerial and uh, average man audience, right? Uh, I didn't want to write a textbook for academic reasons. I wanted to write a book that somebody could pick up on airport bookshelf, for instance. You know? So it was not easy. You know, there are those challenges in terms of um, how to make it work. My second biggest challenge was my personal lifestyle, my travel. And so pre-COVID, um, I would travel every week. Every week I was on a flight to somewhere on the planet. You know, Europe, Asia, Africa, South America, within the US somewhere. Um, I would clock, uh, like on Delta, I had triple diamond status. Very few people have that. <laughs> Sometimes the pilot would come and greet me personally. You know, they would leave like a handwritten note on the seat, thanking me for being one of the, you know, super, super elite flyers. So I was that in that lifestyle. Um, and what that means is I have very little time sitting in one place, but to write a book, you have to sit in one place. So my favorite pastime in a flight transatlantic or you know uh, pacific flight is watching movies right so what i had to do was i had to change my mindset and say no movies okay write a book that means you need to have a structured disciplined time every minute you spend on a flight you need to account for it so i actually had a spreadsheet for every week i had a spreadsheet in this eight hours or 12 hours or 16 hours how am i going to divide my in-flight time okay at best, I would give myself one movie to watch, like two hours, and the rest of the time is divided between sleeping and working on the book. Every week, every Excel sheet had that specific time in place. That's how I got the book done. Um, otherwise, you know, I'd be like still sitting thinking about it. Okay, so no excuse for us who complain we don't have time or we can't put it into our schedule, right? Okay, you, you yeah. basically they cut the hour of Netflix you guys have and like. <laughs> Thank you. That was a very direct answer. Okay, I got it. I got it. So I'll, I'll tell you. It, it was hard, Harsha, because I love watching movies. You know, even today, I would watch one movie every day. I, today, I can afford to spend two hours watching a movie, right? So I'm telling you. Uh, but in my younger days, and I couldn't afford to it, but I wanted to, and it was hard, right? Giving up your favorite activity is hard. <laughs> Okay, okay, so keep a list of the movies, keep a spreadsheet for the time, like we can use the time now and then later when you've got, like when the, the next pandemic comes, we can all sit at home and watch a movie a day, okay, got it, and hopefully um, we will swap some movie, rec we'll get some movie recommendations from you later as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or you can quiz me, you can show me a scene from a movie, you can quiz me which movie is this from, there's an 80% chance I'd be able to say that, it's, it's what the movie is. Really? Yes. Oh my god. That that is amazing. All right. And I want to how ask bad it is. That's how bad it is at my end. That's how bad it is. So, okay, so all right. Um, this is another changing reality we need to have on how movies have like impacted one of the greatest minds ever. We can have a final session. You'll definitely be my first guest. And like maybe moving into the movies go like the the whole like media kind of segment of talk, talking about things. It's like you mm. have like spoken about so many things i feel like um like i'm gonna now i'm gonna expose myself for a moment so normally when i when before i interview someone i try to watch as many of their talks the interviews as possible but you have so many talks and interviews that i could not watch all of them in time before the interview so i only managed to watch a few and the the range of topics that you speak on is amazing so everything from some of the insights that you had in your book to even recent ones on TikTok. I saw you did one uh, for one of the uh, news channels in the US about how TikTok is changing the landscape of things. So among all of these things that you spoke about, among all of the things that you, you have shared about, if you could only pick one topic or what has been your favorite thing to share about with the public so far? One thing that you felt like they didn't know and by giving this message, you really made an impact or made a difference. 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, look, broadly, I've been very curious about, you know, consumer behavior on mobile phones and how companies and organizations can use that data to enrich and make people's lives better. You know, more recently, to your question about one of my favorite topics is mobile healthcare. Okay, so um, as you know, right, there are a lot of people in the world that suffer from chronic diseases like diabetes and blood pressure and cholesterol and arthritis and so on. Now, um, you know, in this world of uh, wearable devices like mobile health apps, uh, you know, people who wear a wearable device on their wrist and they're trying to quantify the behavior, there has been an open question about does the adoption of mobile health devices or apps or wearable devices actually make a difference in people's lives? Okay. And there was nobody who would actually answer that question. So a few years back, uh, my co-authors and I started working with a large consortium of companies in Asia that involved you know, doctors and physicians and pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies, mobile health app platforms. And we carried out one of the world's largest randomized experiments trying to understand that when people adopt wearable devices and mobile health apps, do they make changes in their lifestyle, which then shows up in concrete positive healthcare outcomes. And you know, we, we showed over, over a, after a 15-month period using large-scale experiments that yes, you know, when people um, uh, are randomly given the devices, there is statistically significant evidence that they will change their lifestyle, they will sleep longer, eat healthier, exercise more, and exercise better. And these short-term lifestyle changes lead to longer-term healthcare benefits, such as a reduction in blood glucose levels, a reduction in diabetes levels, a reduction in doctor visits, physician visits, hospital visits, you know, um, a reduction in healthcare expenses. So that, you know, of late, that area is becoming one of my favorite areas to work on because, you know, uh, this can have direct impact on the common man and in, in, in terms of, you know, healthcare, which is, you know, healthcare and education are the two most important things in our lives, right? And so, you know, I'm, I'm looking to uh, see, uh, looking to do more and more work in this space uh, now. Uh, that paper got published in one of the top journals in our field. I also got a Harvard Business Review article of that article um, and, and so on. So I'm looking to do more work in this space of mobile health care to see, you know, what is it that, what is it, what else can we do in this space, you know? Um, so that, you know, at the moment, that is a very interesting topic for me. Okay, that that is very interesting. I'm going to be honest. I've been debating should I save up for mobile healthcare device or something like that. But now I think that I'm being persuaded to say yes. I should start saving up. So thank you, and I will go and make sure I do. I'll read up and listen to some of your research on it, so that I can make a more informed decision. And but no, I think that like like just like that. That's one of the reasons why I think it's so interesting to talk to because it's like the work that you does actually has very real applications. And do you have any stories of? people coming up to you and saying like, oh my God, thank you for this research. I've changed the way my business runs. So I've, I'm sure you have billions of stories like this, but like, well, I've changed my own lifestyle or the way that I run or I work with students or something. And maybe could you share one or two of these stories that touched your heart? Yeah, no, for sure. You know, there are a lot of personal stories where, you know, anecdotal anecdotes where individuals will come and say, I know that, that, that article really made me rethink about how I think about advertising and pricing or, or marketing promotions. But there are also much more broader, you know, examples of companies saying, look, we've read your book, we've read that article, can you help us on our digital transformation journey? So for instance, in 2019, just before COVID hit, uh, I helped uh, Marico, which is a billion dollar uh, consumer packet goods company based in Asia, primarily in India, but they also have a presence in the Middle East. And <laughs> yeah. You know them? Yeah. Um, I helped them navigate a nine month digital transformation journey where they basically were trying to change from being a more physical analog company into a digital company with a significant presence in social media and a digital economy. So, you know, that, that, uh, opportunity arose because they, uh, the CEO and the chairman, they had heard about me and my work from uh, venture capitalists that they work with. Um, and, you know, the, my first meeting, they were quite clear that they were saying, look, you can really help us make an impact. And we are a large organization. And right away, I thought, okay, you know, if I can help the C-suit, CMO, CEO, CEO, 
you know, that will have a trickle-down effect on middle management and then on the more uh, newer junior employees, which will then have a trickle-down effect on their families, but also the consumers of America's products, they would benefit, right? Um, so that's, you know, that's how I always see that, um, you know, uh, not just like my own work, but other, uh, the handful of other business school professors who have an applied research who actually work with companies, I think the trickle-down effects of that impact are not just on a given company. There's a much larger impact from their families to consumers of the products and services. Okay, very, very true. And like again, that's one large company that I know of. So to, to hear that you are one of the people working behind the scenes to make this transformation, I think that I personally would have to like 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 seen that 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 shit, that change. So wow. And, like, <laughs> thank you i guess on behalf of the many other companies that you work with that have improved my life as a consumer like now every time i, I like take a canned drink or like a like a bag of chips i'm going to be wondering like, did the professor help them transform <laughs> so that will be like my thought process so thank you for that as well and for yeah. anything else, other companies and yeah. Like, uh, yeah and like you also have a lot of uh, not, I wouldn't say predictions for the future, but you often comment about how technology is changing our own lives on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, one of the things that I hear you often say is that there'll come a time where when we go out um, of the house, the refrigerator will call us and say like, hey, we're running out of groceries in a sense, could you get this for me? And then we'll be like, oh. Or like our, um, our hot water system will be able to talk to each other and say, oh, the kettle needs it more right now than the bath. Sorry, guys, we're rewiring hot water there. So like, you, you gave a lot of these stories of like how the future of technology is um, going to like, really, really change like tenfold and how it's already we're seeing those changes in our day-to-day -day life. But you also mentioned you like TV, so I've got to ask, are we headed to a science fiction doomsday in a sense where the machines take over or what do you expect the future to hold in a sense? I think, look, you know, perhaps AI will be the single largest influence on our lives going forward. You know, it's already affecting a lot of the meaningful aspects of our lives. You know, many of the apps that we use on our phone are powered by, you know, deep learning, machine learning, which are integral components of AI. You know, that example that you mentioned about the refrigerator calling me on my cell phone to remind me that I would run out of fruits and milk and eggs. That's an example of an IoT, the Internet of Things. And, um, you know, two of my PhD students, uh, Panos Adamapoulos and Zenma Todri, uh, we actually wrote a paper on that uh, phenomenon of Internet of Things that were published in one of the top journals here as well. Um, I think there's a lot more application of IoT that you're going to see. And, you know, more and more automation will obviously enable, you know, uh, some of those connections. Uh, the devices will be talking to each other. You know, it's not just Alexa on your phone, but your washing machine, your dishwasher, your uh, your refrigerator will be talking to you through your phone and just making our lives better and better. You know, I, I know some people have concerns about like privacy and, and sort of, you know, security. And I've never really seen what those concerns, I've never really understood those concerns because, you know, I've always believed that if you have nothing to hide, what do you have to worry? You know, I, I always have this, uncanny feeling that only those people who have things to hide they they start screaming about like privacy <laughs> and security and you know and, yeah i mean my life is an open book i have nothing to hide so i'm okay on that front um but i think you know we will see we will continue to see this uh yin yang you know uh, two sides of the same coin on one hand you have ai and data on the other hand you have privacy okay I think we will continue to see these conversations, you know, swinging back and forth. Um, and uh, I, but I still believe that the world is going to be increasingly, you know, a better place, a more efficient place, a more smooth, seamless place in terms of um, transactions. That being said, my biggest worry is, uh, you know, income inequality, right? And I, I can already see that all this progress that we are making through AI is having a severe detrimental effect on income inequality, like the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And, you know, nobody really has an answer how to fix it, right? Like a lot of us have uh, seen ideas from other thought leaders or governments and policymakers, but honestly, I haven't seen one particular idea that I found compelling. Okay. So I think that is something we all have to collectively work towards figuring out, you know, in my, uh, in the, the Spider-Man quote, like, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And 
I, I always feel like those of us who are in this position of privilege, we have this responsibility to make things in a way where social welfare increases collectively. It's not just accruing to a small part of the society, but it trickles down more broadly. I think we have a lot of work in that space to make the a broader society benefit from all of this. Yep. And, I, and I completely agree with that part where you say it's like, I don't doubt technology will progress. I think we're on the right track with that. But I feel like as technology progresses, humanity also needs to kind of like catch up with that progress in a sense. Yeah. And, it reminds me of actually this quote that I was reading from Greta Thunberg and someone asked her like, wow, you should be a climate scientist and, all, and find out how to solve climate change. And she was like, people already know how to solve climate change. We just need to implement yeah. it in a sense and we need to wake up and actually take the effort to do that. And I feel like very similar to that, it's like um, one of the reasons why we founded Ascendance in the first place was because we felt like a lot of people, like very soon we're going to have these amazing ideas of how do you solve these whole problems. But those ideas might not be implemented or implemented fast enough unless we learn the other things, the human things about it. Collaboration, unconditional yeah. love, kindness, helping those in need, um, taking only what you need, giving the rest back to the community. And what we do today is like bring those lessons to students at a young age so that as they grow up and become the next um, future shapers, the next scientists, the next uh, entrepreneurs, they carry those values with them. So for all of these youngsters out there who want to go change the world, who say, I'm, I'm going to come up with the next way that AI is going to revolutionize everything from doing my homework to, I don't know, pulling out carbon monoxide from the atmosphere. So for all of these youngsters who are, who are motivated to go and change the world, what's your advice to them? I mean, you know, the other the, the advice is inculcate these changes, uh, become a more green person in your personal life. And look, you know, you brought an example of climate change. It's very, it's very near and dear to me because one of my favorite hobbies is mountaineering. And, you know, I actually, there was a time in life where I thought my calling in life is going to be high altitude mountaineering. So I actually went through a very you know, grueling training program for a certification as a guide, as a mountaineering guide. And you know, in the last 20 years, I've climbed uh, you know, several big mountains in five continents in South America, North America, Europe, Asia, and Africa. And when, during the process of climbing over the years, I see the glaciers receding and I see the icebergs melting. And it just breaks my heart to see how climate change is just eroding one of the most natural beauties on our planet, right? And that's why I always feel like, is there any way I can contribute through my research? But probably not, but maybe I can contribute as an individual through my lifestyle, you know, like less use of plastic and, you know, less wasted, that sort of thing. Uh, I think it's just, you know, to the next generation of young people, I would say, you know, try to inculcate that green mindset as much as possible. You know, sometimes it's not as convenient, but it's worth trying, you know, try to reduce wastage, that sort of thing. On the other hand, if you want to pursue a career, I think, you know, there could be some really interesting opportunities on the use of data science and machine learning to alleviate climate change problems. I think we're just scratching the tip of the iceberg here um, because there is more and more data now coming. Uh, these problems are now more commonplace and more global and it's not isolated in one part of the planet. So I do think that there will be opportunities, you know, um, uh, in sort of um, from a career perspective to the next generation in getting trained in business analytics and data science, but then using that uh, not just to like for marketing or advertising or operations, but rather for like more social issues like climate change. I do think those will, there'll be those opportunities. Okay. I think that that's absolutely brilliant. So many of us, we have a, and, and this is again something that I believe in personally, that many of us, we all have our own passions. But yeah. underlying, I believe the human part of us wants to do something for the globe. And I think you give a very good solution that if your passion is in data science and your passion is in this field of things, go and pursue it and use that to solve the problems that yeah. are currently bothering us as a planet in a way. So I really hope that the audience is as inspired as I am and all of those who are currently aspiring change makers or are current change makers in a sense, you take this to heart and you actually go out there and make the changes that I know that you can make. So thank you so much, Professor. You have been so enlightening to talk to, I'd say. And I just hope you had as much fun as I did in today's interview. I did. I did. Absolutely, I did. I think your, your questions are great. And you know, I love this informal style of conversation. 
And uh, look, thank you again, Harsha, for having me. I think what you're doing is phenomenal. It's so impressive at your age. You know, you are this entrepreneur uh, putting such valuable content out there in, in, on the internet. I think it's really impressive. I think many young people will look at you as a role model and rightfully so. So keep up the great work. And uh, look, when you come to the US post-COVID, uh, if you happen to be in New York City, uh, let me know. I would love to uh, meet you in person, grab a coffee or something. You are too kind. And likewise, like you like definitely one of the great, gr greatest minds that I've met, not just in your field, but in life in general. So thank you so much for this thank conversation. You. And um, audience, sorry, I ignored you guys and just asked the questions that I wanted because I just, sorry, but if you have any other questions, feel free to let you can email me, uh, reach out to Changing Reality on our Facebook page or our YouTube channel and all of that. And until next time, thank you guys for watching. And this has been another episode of Changing Reality. Bye. Thank you. You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio.